0: Chapter Fourteen Part One of More Love to Thee The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Hand More Love to Thee The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice. Chapter Fourteen Part One Work and Play, 1875-1877 to A Bible Reading in New York, Her Painting, Grace for Grace, Death of a Young Friend, The Summer at Dorset, Bible Readings There, Encompassed with Kindred, Typhoid Fever in the House, Watching and Waiting, The Return to Town, A Day of Family Rejoicing, Life, a battlefield her time and thoughts during eighteen seventy five were mostly taken up by her bible readings her painting the society of kinsfolk from the east and the west getting her eldest son ready for college and by the dangerous illness of her youngest daughter some extracts from the few letters belonging to this year will give the main incidents of its history to a young friend january thirteenth eighteen seventy five I have had two Bible readings, and they bid fair to be more like those of last winter than I had dared to hope. There are earnest, thoughtful, praying souls present who help me in conducting the meeting, and you would be astonished to see how much better I can do when not under the keen embarrassment of delivering a lecture, as at Dorset. I have a young friend about your age who is dying of consumption, and it is very delightful to see how happy she is. She used to attend the Bible readings last winter. "'About the painting? Well, I have dug away, and Mrs. Beers painted out and painted in, till I have got a beautiful great picture almost entirely done by her. Then I undertook the old fence with the clematis on it here at home, and made a horrid daub. She painted most of that out, and is having me do it at the studio. Meanwhile, I have worked on another she lent me, and finished it today, and they all say that it is a success.' In my last two lessons mrs B. contrived to let some light into my bewildered brain and says that if I paint with her this winter and next summer I shall be able to do what I please my most discouraging time, she says, is over. Not that I have been discouraged an atom. I have great faith in a strong will and a patient perseverance and have had no idea of saying die. Some lady in Philadelphia bought forty copies of Urbane. It was very discriminating in you to see how comforting to me would be that passage from robertson god only fully knows how i have got my education the school has at times been too awful to talk about to any being save him to mrs humphrey new york april sixth, 1875 my point about grace for grace is this I believe in growth in grace, but I also believe in, because I have experienced it and find my experience in the Word of God, a work of the Spirit subsequent to conversion, not necessarily in all cases, perhaps, but in all cases where Christian life begins and continues feebly, which puts the soul into new conditions of growth. If a plant is sickly and drooping, you must change its atmosphere before you can cure it or make it grow. A great many years ago, disgusted with my spiritual life, I was led into new relations to Christ, to which I could give no name, for I never had heard of such an experience. When we moved into this house, I found a paper that had been long buried among rubbish, in which I said, I am one great long sunbeam, and I don't know any words that, on the whole, could better cover most of my life since then. I have been a great sufferer, too, but that has, in the main, nothing to do with one's relation to Christ except that most forms of pain bring him nearer. Now one cannot read Grace for Grace without loving and sympathizing with the author, because of his deep-seated longing for and final attainment of holiness. But it seemed to me there was a good deal of needless groping, which more looking into Christ might have spared him. It is, as you say, curious to see how people who agree in so many points differ so in others. I suspect it is because our degrees of faith vary the one who believes most gets most the subject of sin versus sinlessness is the vexed question on which as fast as most people get or think they get light somebody comes along and snuffs out their candles with unceremonious finger and thumb a dearly beloved woman spent a month with me last spring she thinks she is kept from sin and certainly the change from a most estimable but dogmatic character is absolutely wonderful There was this discrepancy between her experience and mine, with, on all other points, the most entire harmony. She had had no special joyful revelations of Christ to her soul, and I had had them till it seemed as if body and soul would fly apart. On the other hand, she had a sweet sense of freedom from sin which transcended anything I had ever had consciously, although I really think that when one is looking unto Jesus, one is not likely to fall into much noticeable sin talking with Miss S. about the two experiences of my dear friend and myself, she said that it could be easily explained by the fact that all the gifts of the Spirit were rarely, if ever, given to one soul. She is very properly reticent as to what she has herself received, but she behaved in such a beautiful Christ-like way on a point where we differed, a point of practice, that I cannot doubt she has been unusually blessed." Early in May of this year, she was afflicted by the sudden death in Paris of a very dear friend of her eldest daughter, Miss Virginia S. Osborne. During the previous summer, Miss Osborne had passed several weeks at Dorset and endeared herself, while there, to all the family. The following is from a letter of Mrs. Prentiss to the bereaved mother. I feel much more like sitting down and weeping with you than attempting to utter words of consolation nowhere out of her own home was virginia more beloved and admired than in our family we feel afflicted painfully at what to our human vision looks like an unmitigated calamity but if it is so hard for us to bear to whom in no sense she belonged what a heart-rending event this is to you her mother what an amazement what a mystery but it will not do to look upon it on this side We must not associate anything so unnatural as death with a being so eminently formed for life. We must look beyond, as soon as our tears will let us, to the sphere on which she has been honored to enter in her brilliant youth, to the society of the noblest and the best human beings earth has ever known, to the fullness of life, the perfection of every gift and grace, to congenial employment, to the welcome of him who has conquered death and brought life and immortality to light. If we think of her as in the grave, we must own that hers was a hard lot. But she is not in a grave. She is at home. She is well. She is happy. She will never know a bereavement or a day's illness or the infirmities and trials of old age. She has got the secret of perpetual youth. But while these thoughts assuage our grief, they cannot wholly allay it. We have no reason to doubt that she would have given and received happiness here upon earth had she been spared and we cannot help missing her, mourning for her, longing for her out of the very depths of our hearts. The only real comfort is that God never makes mistakes, that he would not have snatched her from us if he had not had a reason that would satisfy us if we knew it. I cannot tell you with what tender sympathy I think of your return to your desolate home, the agonizing meeting with your bereaved boys, the days and nights that have to be lived through face to face with a great sorrow. May God bless and keep you all. To Mrs. Condict, Dorset, July 11th, 1875. I've been sitting at my window, enjoying the clear blue sky and the living green of the fields and woods, and wishing you were here to share it all with me. But as you are not, the next best thing is to write you. You seem to have been wafted into that strange seaside spot to do work there, and I hope you will have health and strength for it. One of the signs of the times is the way in which the hand of Providence scatters city folk all about in waste places, there to sow seed that in his own time shall spring up and bear fruit for him. I was shocked at what you said about Miss Blank not recognizing you. It seemed almost incredible. Mr. Prentiss has persuaded me to have a family Bible reading on Sunday afternoon, as we have no service, and studying up for it this morning, I came to this proverb which originated with Huss, whose name in bohemian signifies goose he said at the stake if you burn a goose a swan will rise from its ashes and i thought well miss blank's usefulness is at an end but god can and no doubt will raise up a swan in her place about forty now attend my bible reading we have my eldest brother here and he is a perfect enthusiast about dorset and has enjoyed his visit immensely He said yesterday that he had laughed more that afternoon than in the previous ten years. We expect Dr. Stearns and his daughter on the 20th, and when they leave, Mr. P. intends to go to Maine and try a change of air and scene. I hate to have him go. His trouble of last year keeps me uneasy if he is long out of my sight. To the same, Dorset, August, 1875. I have just written a letter to my husband, from whom I have been separated a whole day he has gone to Maine, partly to see friends, partly to get a little sea air. He wanted me to go with him, but it would have ended in my getting down sick. This summer I am encompassed with relatives, two of my brothers, a nephew, a cousin, a second cousin, and in a day or two one brother's wife and child, and two more second cousins are to come, not to our house, but to board next door. There is a troop of artists swarming the tavern, all ladies, some of them very congenial, cultivated, excellent persons. They are all delighted with Dorset, and it is pleasant to stumble on little groups of them at their work. A has been out sketching with them and succeeds very well. I have given up painting landscapes and taken to flowers. I've just had a visit here in my room from three hummingbirds. They are attracted by the flowers. One of the cousins is just now riding on the lawn. Her splendid hair has come down and covers her shoulder and with her color always lovely heightened by exercise and pleasure she makes a beautiful picture what is nicer than an unsophisticated young girl i have no time for reading this summer among the crowd but one cannot help thinking wherever one is and i have come to this conclusion happiness in its strictest sense is found only in christ at the same time there are many sources of enjoyment independently of him it is getting dark and i cannot see my lines i am more and more puzzled about good people making such mistakes Dr. Stearns says that the Reverend Mr. has been laying his hands on people and saying, Receive the Holy Ghost. Such excesses give me great doubt and pain. To the same, September 3rd, 1875. Your letter came to find me in a sorrowful and weary spot. My dear M lies here with typhoid fever, and my heart and soul and body are in less than a fortnight of it pretty well used up and my husband is in almost as bad a case with double anxiety, he and A expecting every hour to see me break down. It has been an awful pull for us all, for not one of us has an atom of health to spare, and only keep about by avoiding all the wear and tear we can. Dr. Buck has sent us an excellent English nurse. She came yesterday and insisted on sitting up with M all night, and we all dropped into our beds like so many shot birds. I heard her go down for ice three times, so I knew my precious lamb was not neglected, and slept in peace. We are encompassed with mercies. The physician who drives over from Manchester is as skillful as he is conscientious. This house is admirably adapted to sickness. The stairway only nine feet high, plenty of water, and my room, which I have given her, admits of her lying in a draft as the doctor wishes her to do. While the nurse is sleeping, as she is now, A and I take turns sitting out on the piazza, where there is a delicious breeze almost always blowing. The ladies here are disappointed that I can no longer hold the Bible readings, but it is not so much matter that I am put off work if you are put on it. The field is won, and the master knows whom to use and when and where. We have been reading with great delight a little book called Miracles of Faith. I am called to M., who has had a slight chill, and of course high fever after it. It seems painfully unnatural to see my sunbeam turned into a dark cloud, and it distresses me, so, to see her suffer, that I don't know how I am going to stand it. But I won't plague you with any more of this, nor must I forget how often I have said, Thy will be done. You need not doubt that God's will looks so much better to us than our own, that nothing would tempt us to decide our child's future. To Her Eldest Son, Dorset, September nineteenth, 1875 Your letters are a great comfort to us, and the way to get many is to write many. M's fever ran 21 days, as the doctor said it would, and began to break yesterday. On Friday, it ran very high. Her pulse was 120, and her temperature 105. Bad, bad, bad. She is very, very weak. We have sent away Pharaoh and the kitten. Faye would bark, and Kit would come in and stare at her, and both made her cry. The doctor has the house kept still as the grave. He even brought over his slippers, lest his step should disturb her she is not yet out of danger so you must not be too elated we four are sitting in the dining-room with a hot fire papa is reading aloud to a and h it is evening and m has had her opiate and is getting to sleep i have not much material of which to make letters sitting all day in a dark room in almost total silence the artists are rigging up the church beautifully with my flowers etc mr palmer and mr lawrence lending their aid your father is reading about hans anderson You must read the article in The Living Age, number 1,631. It is ever so funny. I had such a queer dream last night. I dreamed that Maggie plagued us so that your father went to New York and brought back two cooks. I said I only wanted one. Oh, but these are so rare, he said. Come out and see them. So he led me into the kitchen, and there sat at the table, eating dinner very solemnly, two ostriches. Now what that dream was made of I cannot imagine. Now I must go to bed, pretty tired. When you are lonely and blue, think how we all love you. Good night, dear old fellow. September 21st. It cuts me to the heart, my precious boy, that your college life begins under such a shadow. But I hope you know where to go in both loneliness and trouble. You may get a telegram before this reaches you. If you do not, you had better pack your valise and have it ready for you to come at a minute's warning. The doctor gives us hardly a hope that M will live. She may drop away at any moment. While she does live, you are better off at Princeton, but when she is gone, we shall all want to be together. We shall have her buried here in Dorset, otherwise I never should want to come here again. A said this was her day to write to you, but she had no heart to do it. The only thing I can do while is asleep is to write letters about her. Good night, dear boy. 22nd The doctor was here from eight to nine last night and said she would suffer a little more and sleep her life away. She says she is nicely, and the nurse says so. Your father and I have had a good cry this morning, which has done us no little service. Dear boy, this is a bad letter for you, but I have done the best I can. To Mrs. George Payson, New York, October 31st, 1875. I hope you received the postal announcing our safe arrival home. I've been wanting to answer your last letter but now that the awful strain is over i begin to flag I am tired and lame and sore and any exertion is an effort but after all the dismal letters i have had to write i want to tell you what a delightful day yesterday was to us all g came home from princeton all six of us at the table at once eating our meat with gladness the pleasantest family day of our lives m's recovery during the last week has been little short of miraculous We got her home, after making such a bugbear of it, in perfect comfort. We left Dorset about noon in a close carriage. The doctor and his wife were at the station and weighed M., when we found she had lost thirty-six pounds. The coachman took her in his arms and carried her into the car, when who should meet us but the Warners. On reaching the New York depot, George rushed into the car in such a state of wild excitement that he took no notice of anyone but M. He then flew out, and a man flew in, and without saying a word snatched her up in his arms, whipped her into a reclining chair, and he and another man scampered with her to the carriage and seated her in it. I had to run to keep up with them and nearly knocked down a gigantic policeman who was guarding it. The warner spent the night here and left next morning before I was up, so afraid of making trouble. A friend has put a carriage at our disposal, and M is to drive every day when and where and as long as she pleases. And now I hope I shall have something else to write about. As to the Bible readings, I do not find commentaries of much use. Experience of life has been my chief earthly teacher, and one gains that every day. You must not write me such long letters. It is too much for you. How I do wish you would do something desperate about getting well. At any rate, don't any of you have typhoid fever? It is the very meanest old snake of a fox I ever heard of, making its way like a masked burglar. To Mrs. Condict, New York, November 7th, 1875, we came home on the 27th of October. M bore the journey wonderfully well and has improved so fast that she drives all round the park every day, Miss W having put a carriage at our disposal. How delightful it is to get my family together once more, no tongue can tell, nor did I realize all I was suffering till the strain was over. I am longing to get physical strength for work, but my husband is very timid about my undertaking anything. Dr. Ludlow was here one day last week to ask me to give a talk in his study to some of his young Christians, but my husband told him it was out of the question at present. I shall be delighted to do it. Much of my experience of life has cost me a great price, and I want to use it for the strengthening and comforting of other souls. No doubt you feel so too. Whatever may be said to the contrary by others, to me life has been a battlefield, and I believe always will be. But is the soldier necessarily unhappy and disgusted because he is fighting? I trow not. I am reading the history of the Oxford Conference. There is a great deal in it to like, but what do you think of this saying of its leader? Did it ever strike you, dear Christian, that if the poor world could know what we are in Christ, it would worship us? I say, Pshaw! What a fallacy. Why should it worship us when it rejects Christ? Well, we have to take even the best people as they are. A few weeks later, she met a company of the young ladies of Dr. Ludlow's church and gave them a familiar talk on the Christian life. The following letter from Dr. L. will show you how much they were interested. Dear Mrs. Prentice, I find that you have so taken hold of the young ladies of my church that it will be hard for you to relieve yourself of them. They insist on meeting you again. The hesitancy to ask you questions last Thursday was due to the large number present i have asked only the younger ones to come this week those who are either seeking the way or are just at its beginning five of those you addressed last week have announced their purpose of confessing christ at the coming communion several questions have come from those silent lips which i am requested to submit to you what is it to believe how much feeling of love must i have before i can count myself jesus disciple i am troubled with my lack of feeling I know that sin is heinous, but do not feel deep abhorrence of it. I know that Jesus will save me, but I have no enthusiasm of gratitude. Am I a Christian? I am afraid to confess Christ, lest I should not honor him in my life, for I am naturally impulsive and easily fall into religious thoughtlessness. Should I wait for an inward assurance of strength or begin a Christian life, trusting him to help me? Any of these topics will be very pertinent. I trust that nothing will prevent you from being present on Thursday afternoon. I will call for you. The limited number who will be present will give you a better working basis than you had last week. The older young ladies have assented to their exclusion this week on the condition that at some time they too can come. Very gratefully yours, James M. Ludlow. In a letter dated May 3, 1880, Dr. Ludlow thus refers to these meetings. "'I regret that I cannot speak more definitely of Mrs. Prentice's conversations with the young ladies of my charge, as it was my custom to withdraw from the room after a few introductory words, so that she could speak to them with the familiarity of a mother. I know that all that group felt the warmth of her interest in them, the charm of her character which was so refined by her love of Christ and strengthened by her experience of needed grace, as well as the wisdom of her words.' I was impressed, from so much as I did hear of her remarks, with her ability to combine rarest beauty and highest spirituality of thought with the utmost simplicity of language and the plainest illustrations. Her conversation was like the mystic ladder which was, set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Her most solemn counsel was given in such a way as never to repress the buoyant feeling of the young, but rather to direct it toward the true joy of the Lord. She seemed to regard the cheer of today as much of a religious duty as the hope for tomorrow, and those with whom she conversed partook of her own peace. I shall always remember these meetings as among the happiest and most useful associations of my ministry in New York. End of chapter 14, part 1